Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talked to Don Morton Rias, CEO of the National Commission on Certification of Physician Assistants, about how the role of physician assistants has evolved over the years. And now, on to the interview. This is Jay Kumar, editor of PSQH, and I'm joined today by Dr. Don Morton Rias, CEO of the NCCPA, the National Commission on Certification of Physician Assistants. Welcome, Don. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Pleasure to have you. And I, I wonder if we could just get started, uh, if you could tell me a little bit about the NCCPA and, and what it does. Great. Thank you. I always uh, enjoy the opportunity to talk a little bit about NCCPA. So we are the National Commission on Certification of Physician Assistants. We're a nonprofit organization uh, founded in, in 1974, and we are, in fact, the certifying body for the PA profession. Uh, what we do is we develop certification programs uh, that reflect standards of clinical knowledge and clinical reasoning and other medical skills and professional behaviors that are required by PAs upon entry to the profession and throughout their careers. What that translates into is the development of um, a content blueprint, uh, which is derived from a practice analysis, and a content blueprint uh, sets the stage for what will be covered on the entry-level certification examination for PAs. Uh, we also have a, um, and we, we rely on PAs to develop those exam items and, and rely on the, the skills of psychometricians and others to build those exams. We also uh, develop a recertification exam, which PAs sit for every 10 years uh, throughout the course of their career. And we offer uh, a number of maintenance of certification uh, initiatives where PAs can um, complete continuing medical education credits, document their continued learning, and, and um, demonstrate their continued um, acquisition of new knowledge and development of new skills, and, and therefore maintain their certification throughout their, their careers. We also develop a, um, kind of some specialty type of examinations, what we call certificates of added qualifications, uh, which are exams that and processes that PAs can participate in to uh, demonstrate an additional fund of knowledge in a, in a particular practice area. So in a nutshell, that's, that's what we do. All right. Um, and how has the role of PAs changed over the years and, and where do you see it going? So when the profession started uh, back in the late 60s and early 70s, PAs were, first of all, primarily male, men who had been in the uh, military and who had, traditional, uh, had a lot of clinical experience from their military background. And so they, they started out, the profession started out with PAs working in, in generalist medicine, family medicine, community-based medical care, uh, family practice. As healthcare has changed over uh, the past 50 plus years, um, and the profession has changed as well. And so PAs are now um, more commonly working in hospital settings and acute care settings. Uh, we're working in um, specialty areas. In fact, 70% of PAs specialize and that they're working in surgical and medical subspecialties. And that increase in specialization and, and the influence of technology has certainly changed the way uh, healthcare is delivery, 
delivered and the way that um, the profession has uh, has evolved. It certainly has also changed how we assess TAs. So our certification and maintenance of certification initiatives have also changed to reflect that higher degree of specialization, higher degree of, of utilization of technology, uh, you know, that is, that is um, you know, evident in the healthcare industry. And about how many PAs are there uh, working in the U.S.? Do you have any idea? Sure. There are more than 148,000 okay. certified PAs in the U.S. Uh, there is an additional three or 4,000 PAs who, who are working, who are licensed, who have chosen for a number of reasons not to maintain their certification, uh, but they're also practicing as well. So that brings the total up to well over 150,000 PAs uh, in, in the U.S. And another thousand or so that are um, working in various parts of the world, either through the military or um, now have relocated to other countries that utilize PAs. So it's, it's a good number of PAs that are that are working outside of the U.S. as well. Um, so let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the pandemic and, and sort of, you know, obviously we're still in it, but, you know, what have we learned or about the U.S. healthcare system, and and where do you see us going from here? That's a great question. I think this pandemic has has taught us a lot. Uh, what we've learned about the healthcare system is that it is fragile. It is not unending. It, it is not completely expandable to meet you know unending needs. It can be taxed and overburdened. Uh, relatively easily, unfortunately, and I think the pandemic has has taught us that that you know ensuring the the health and well being of all of our frontline health providers is really important, and the pandemic helped illustrate the the care that is needed for those frontline workers. Um, the the pandemic also taught the general population about uh, you know airborne transmission of infectious disease. I don't think the average person was as mindful of, of how infections are transmitted uh, through the environment and through you know sanitary conditions and, and close human contact. So I think that was a learning lesson for everyone on how uh, you know how infections can be transmitted. And it certainly um, it certainly em- uh, evidence for us, the, the presence of health disparities. Every population uh, didn't experience and isn't, isn't experiencing the pandemic in the exact same way. Uh, some populations of, of frontline workers, service workers, people who are out and about within the community more readily, uh, you know, had a, a greater burden as it related to the pandemic. So I think it taught us a lot about society. It also taught us a lot about uh, you know, allocation of health resources, uh, physical health resources, as well as emotional health resources, and how important it is to uh, to be attentive to, to all of those. Um, when our system is overburdened by an infectious disease, that doesn't leave very much room for the acute conditions and the traumatic injuries and, and other health concerns that uh, the healthcare industry faces in general, you know, in, in general times, if you will. And so I think the pandemic highlighted all of those all of those challenges. Um, the good news is it also highlighted the resilience of of the community, the resilience of the healthcare system and 
and the, the dedicated personnel who work in the healthcare industry who are willing to go the extra mile to care for patients, uh, to, to serve as a bridge between patients and family members when they were isolated, et cetera. So, you know, we saw some and continue to see some terrible outcomes from the pandemic, but we also see some glimmers of hope, uh, of optimism and of, of evidence of, of humanity uh, caring for each other, you know, that became apparent during the pandemic. Definitely. Um, how did the flexibility of PAs prove valuable during the pandemic? You know, PAs are educated uh, in a generalist model, a medical model that provides us the opportunity to, to acquire a tremendous amount of knowledge and skill uh, across all disciplines and practice areas. And our certification also reinforces that. It, it ensures, and our maintenance of certification ensures that we maintain a baseline for fund of core medical knowledge, um, which enables us to move readily across disciplines. Uh, almost 70% of PAs practice in more than one discipline throughout the course of their careers. So we are very flexible as a profession, which is a hallmark of our profession. And that proved to be very valuable during the pandemic in that there were PAs working in highly specialized areas who were able to fill gaps in, um, in general medicine and core medical set settings and conditions, uh, be able to fill in and care for patients when elective surgeries were discontinued or put on hold. PAs were able to move into uh, some of those generalist and general medical capacities to, to bridge those gaps. And so I think that flexibility uh, really proved to be very helpful during the, during the pandemic. Um, guess there were some PAs who were furloughed or, or who had their work interrupted because they were specialized in elective surgeries and things like that were put on hold early in the pandemic. Uh, but I think that flexibility um, presented itself as, a, as an asset as, as time went on during the pandemic. And, uh, and that's one of the hallmarks of our profession. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, obviously the, the physical toll um, that COVID has taken on everybody. But I, I mean, imagine, especially on, you know, medical professionals, uh, what have you uh, sort of heard from you know, your, your uh, PA is about the emotional toll as well. I am, you know, I, I've been reading a lot about just sort of, you know, it's been really tough on healthcare professionals, you know, going through uh, everything they had to go through over the last year and a half. How are, uh, how are PAs dealing with, with all this? You know, that, that's a great question. And while I am a certified PA, I'm not practicing clinically presently, but my husband is also a certified PA and he is practicing clinically. And he's worked, you know, for his entire career in, uh, in surgery and, and surgical ICU critical care. And what I've noticed from him over the course of this 18 months is that um, he's always been very optimistic and um, positive about providing health care. And I, I saw early in the pandemic the toll that this was taking on him and his team members as, as health providers because there were such poor outcomes initially. And that was different. You know, uh, 
PAs have been very successful in caring for patients and, and doing a good job in, in bridging the gap between patient care and family care and being able to translate, you know, what's going on, explain to patients and their family members what's happening and, and to really be an advocate for patients while also addressing their medical and surgical needs. But during the pandemic, uh, early stages of the pandemic in particular, there was a lot of isolation for patients who were acutely ill, separation from their family members, and, and PAs and other health providers really then had to fill that gap and, and try to be more than healthcare providers, to be companions for, uh, for patients in the hospital who were, who were battling a, a deadly disease and an infectious process. And that took an, a, a serious toll. Also, you know, the, the, the communicability of this infection, the transmissibility of this infection places health providers at risk. And so for the first time, I saw concern for uh, the health and well-being of the family that I hadn't seen in all, in all of the years that he had been caring for patients. Uh, the, the burden of having enough PPE and ensuring that he wasn't bringing uh, bringing anything home, mm -hmm. wearing having several different outfits, you know, clothes to travel in, clothes to work in, clothes to come out of work in, uh, and then also the isolation when he came home. And this his scenario and his experience was not unique. We spoke with and we had focus groups, uh, roundtable conversations with PAs across the country who described very much similar experiences where they were isolated themselves from their family members because of the concerns uh, that, they, that they bore, they carried regarding uh, transmission and wanting to keep their family members safe. So, you know, poor outcomes, lots of burden and stress at work, and then isolation on your off hours. That creates a lot of pressure and, uh, and risk for healthcare providers whose job is every day to care for others. Uh, but, you know, as we all know from our experience on airlines, they tell you to put the oxygen on your face first if it's necessary, right, right. Uh, you know, in an emergency. And so if you're caring for other people all day, every day, and the outcomes are poor and the, the burden is increasing and the isolation is increasing, that presents a, a, a tremendous stress for, for those workers. So I applaud all of them who who really pushed through that very difficult period of time. Um, as, experience, as they gained more experience in, in, with, this, with this infectious disease and how best to care for it, the outcomes started to improve. And, and with the um, presence of the vaccine and, and other treatments and so forth, we started to see uh, improvements. And that brightened the outcomes as also, and it also brightened the spirit of those frontline workers, which I thought was, was really very neat, very, you know, essential and very hopeful. It's a little demoralizing to see us now, you know, 18 months in, still facing, you know, the third, fourth, fifth wave, whatever the number is, I've lost count. Uh, and to see that, you know, we haven't completely turned the corner here, even though there is a vaccine, uh, that, that does that does place another burden on those frontline workers to persevere, uh, you know, throughout all of this. Uh, and to still provide good care, which of course they're doing, but it, it does, it is at a cost for them. No, no doubt. Um, are you surprised that we're still dealing with this? I mean, obviously we've never seen anything like this in our lifetimes, but um, I think, you know, everybody thought this was going to be wrapped up a long time ago. Why, why do you think it, it's still hanging around? 
Well, I think, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, this infectious disease has been uh, and this pandemic has been politicized. And so it's a lot. There are a lot of conflicting views and perspectives about the best way to approach, uh, you know, approach this situation. And uh, and we are a society of free will. And so everyone wants to exercise their their independent thoughts and think and actions. And, and it's certainly understandable. Uh, and so I think that has played a part in in the situation that we're facing, um, you know. And, and transmission of infectious diseases is very clearly, uh, you know, a clear process. We understand how this happens. There's a science to it, and and you know there are strategies that minimize, do not completely obliterate risk, but there are strategies that minimize risk. Uh, and so it, it's a little. Um, unnerving to see that there's so much controversy regarding the exercise of those strategies recognizing that nothing is a hundred percent vaccines are not a hundred percent treatments are not a hundred percent but in combination these things do uh do work uh, and so it's it's hard to uh it's hard to, to to wrap our heads around some of the resistance and i think that has contributed to uh, you know, to some of the circumstances that we're facing, um, and I understand there's a lot of mistrust and a lot of questions and so forth, and 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 there's no one single best answer. But I think collectively, the wisdom you know has suggested that there's certain approaches that would minimize the risk, not obliterate it, but minimize it, and and help us as a society to turn the corner. Uh, but we're not there yet. Um, and hopefully we'll be there soon, but we're not there yet. Yeah. Um, what can we take away from this entire experience sort of looking forward and, you know, uh, what, what is, how does this prepare us for the next big infectious disease? I know, I know we're still dealing with this one, but you know, there's so many things that, you know, we've been warned about over the years and, and you know, how, how do we sort of take what we've learned, um, you know, from dealing with COVID, uh, you know, forward as we, as we go? Well, you know, that's a great question. And I think of it on a couple of different levels. I think of it from the individual standpoint first. I think we all are now much more aware of how, how infection is transmission, is transmitted rather. And I think the importance of, you know, <laughs> hygienic practices and, and, minimizing crowds and things like that. You know, we've all lived in societies where things are really close together, uh, you know, and I think we now have a, a, a keen appreciation for the value of, of spreading things out a little bit. So I think from individual standpoint, we've learned the importance of kind of just letting some free, free air flow through and not being so concentrated. I think we've all been reminded of the importance of good hygienic practices. Uh, I think we've all been reminded of the importance of health and wellness, you know, keeping ourselves healthy. This pandemic helped us to see that those who had underlying medical problems and and other uh, health concerns generally didn't it faced more difficulties than those who were a little healthier, uh, if certainly if they could adapt their lifestyle. So I think all of those are, are take-home lessons for us as individuals. I think this pandemic has also heightened the importance of care for medical providers and health providers, that they're, they're human just like the rest of us, and they, they need to be uh, attended to so that they can continue to do what they do, as well as the other frontline workers who are taking care of society as a whole. 
we tend to walk past and not notice them until we need to notice them. And, and I think the pandemic helps us to notice them. I think from a macro level, from a, from a societal level, you know, we were able to achieve the vaccine or release of the vaccine because of the background work that had been done years and years ago to, to help study these diseases and these uh, viruses. So I think it, this pandemic has helped point out the value of research, the value of continued study and learning and support for those endeavors so that we are, you know, we have the right science, you know, looking at things and the right people looking at things, even if they're not evident right now, but planning for the future and helping to guide our thinking for when these situations occur. You know, we are living day to day, but we're not remind, we're not thinking about what's going on and, uh, you know, in, in science that really helped us to get to where we are today. Uh, so I think there's lots of take-home uh, messages on, le on several levels that uh, this pandemic has helped to, uh, to amplify. Um, Those are just the ones that came off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. No, those were good. Um, wanted to close out by asking you, um, where do you see sort of, you know, getting back to PAs, um, the future of the profession? Uh, you know, how do you sort of see uh, the profession moving forward um, as we go? So the question, you know, years ago when I became a PA, the question was, you know, so will you be able to get a job with this? Will this really be a good career for you? Here we are many decades later, and this profession has grown and evolved and adapted to emerging needs in the healthcare industry. Started out as a primary care profession, family medicine, community-based, uh, providing services in, for the underserved. We continue as a profession to do that. PAs are working in every setting and every discipline in healthcare. So in some respects, we've continued to fulfill that mission, but we've also adapted to meet evolving and emerging needs in medicine and healthcare, specialization, high-tech disciplines and settings, working in every clinical discipline you could think of and every setting you could think of. So the adaptability and flexibility of this profession to continue to evolve to meet the needs of the healthcare industry as it continues to change, I think is a hallmark of this profession and positions it well to continue to grow and evolve. Uh, you know, again, 150,000 uh, certified PAs, approximately 150,000 certified PAs, and there are, you know, 10,000 PAs graduating every year from more than 270 PA programs across the United States. This is a profession that is young. The average age is 38. The average age for PAs is 38. It's a profession that's young and continually growing and is eagerly sought by new, new students and those interested in medicine and healthcare. So I see the profession being having a very bright future. We play an important part in the delivery of healthcare. You know, we not only are excellent medical providers, having completed a rigorous educational process and made certification and maintenance of certification processes throughout our career, but we also are patient advocates. We also communicate with patients, translate for patients, help patients to understand what's going on and, and how they too can be a partner in caring for their own health and wellness. And so the combination of science and interpersonal skill, I think, really positions the profession well to, you know, to continue to be a good contributor going forward.
So I see us, I see us moving in every direction. Just recently, uh, there was a PA that was on uh, the most recent space launch, and right. uh, and that tells you we're not only on the ground, we're in space. <laughs> there that, you go. That's a a, re a remarkable accomplishment. Uh, we're very proud of her. We have a PA that's in Congress. We have PAs that are working in in all, as I said, all clinical disciplines, but also in other parts of the you know other industries. We're utilizing our knowledge and skills and our medical background to be around tables to help shape policy to inform um, the dialogue regarding what is needed in medicine and healthcare for the patients that we all serve and the patients that we will become at one point in our lives or another. So this is a profession that's continually moving and growing and adapted, adapting to, you know, a variety of circumstances and conditions and that's very, very exciting. Well, that's great. Uh, Dr. Morton Rias, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. It's been my pleasure, and I thank you so much for your time. All right. That wraps up episode 41 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.